Whether you need to restock the fridge or just have a sudden, intense craving for cheese puffs, Kroger Delivery will get you just what you need in as little as 30 minutes. From groceries to household items, Kroger delivers right to your door. So don't let one major craving have you reaching for your car keys. Open the Kroger app and start your cart, whatever the cart. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Delivery time's not guaranteed. Restrictions may apply. See site for details. In the heat of the moment, you're not just keeping it calm, you're keeping it cool too. With an ice cold cold brew. And not just any cold brew, but one that's slow steeped and mixed with brown sugar and molasses flavor. With a cold foam infused with brown sugar coolness and a cinnamon sugar sprinkle on top. That's keeping it calm, cool, and cold brewed. With Dunkin's new brown sugar cream cold brew, America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Terms apply. Hello there, welcome to another episode of This Week in History with me, your host, Dan the Viking. And I'm going to be taking a back seat again this week. Uh, we have a war story for you. Uh, I say we, because uh, you've probably guessed we, we have uh, Dad back on the show again. One, this story in particular is, is quite a famous story. Um, I'm not sure how many people know the ins and outs of it. Um, I'm not sure. I, I mean, I didn't know a huge amount about the story until I did a bit of research myself, but I definitely heard of the name. So this is a war story. I'm not going to give too much away. Um, you've got like, to be fair, I'm saying that, and you've all click, clicked on play, so you all know the title. So w- what are we talking about? Well, it's an interesting story from history, and it's a very few people know what it is yeah all right but they'll have, heard the name they might have heard the name but they'll have seen your picture on yes. facebook yes. so they might have an idea and it's all about something called the lady be good lbg yeah, yeah? Um, so what was the lady be good what do you think well i mean i know you the know answer, the answer <laughs> don't you? Um, yeah but so shall i tell you it was a 1941 film based on a 1924 musical about a brother and sister is it? No, it's no, not. seriously, no. It is, but it's not. That's not what we're talking about. So, if you have actually tuned in to listen to uh, a, a story uh, from history about a brother and sister from 1924, sorry, you you've got the, the wrong. You're, you're in the wrong place. Yeah. Okay. Right. So, seriously, what was the lady be good? Right. Uh, it was an aeroplane. There can't be very many people in history that don't know the name of the B-17 Flying Fortress. Mm. Yeah. That's one of the most um, famous of the war. And one of those was the Memphis Bell. And that Memphis Bell was 1942 to 1943. Yeah. Okay. Now, while this particular plane, Memphis Bell, was going through its fantastic series of, of uh, bombing runs... I mean, because it completed a set number of runs and then the crew were allowed to go home, having completed their tour. Uh, While this crew was halfway through their tour of duty, the story of the plane that we're going to talk about actually took place. All right? Mm -hmm. Now, I knew a fair amount about this story before before doing any of the research. Yeah, I think this is one that, um, like I said, I mean, my... One of my favourite parts of history has been World War Two, you know, the old World War Two movies and things like that. So it's a story that I know a little bit about. I so I know, I know the internet. I know what happened. I know the outcome of the story. But as always, when you come on the show, I'm sure there'll be something that I learn. So yeah, of course. Now. I had to do some detailed research for mm. it. I have the names of all the crew and the pilots involved in the day of the raid in question, but I want to tell you a story and not bombard everybody with sort of details that they're not going to remember. All okay. Right? So if anybody wants the extra details, Dan, just let the, let well let you know, yeah, and I'll supply them because the story will stand up without too many names and details. Yeah, I mean we can post the names on uh, on the web uh, on the Facebook group if you're. 
if you want. We'll just stick them on the Facebook group under the picture. Um, be easier I mean, that can way. do if people yeah, want be to easier that way. I mean, I will give some names out because there are, there are important. There, names. there are some that are important. Okay. So what are we going to do? We're going to start this story in 1942. Okay, when an aircraft number 41 hyphen 24301 rolled off the production line, the consolidation works. Okay. It was one of 629 four-engined B-24 Liberators ordered from Consolidated Aircraft in San Diego, California. The American government ordered 629, and the one we're going to talk about is one of those. Okay. So it's a B-24. It's actually a B-24D, if you for those technical people. She was destined to become part of a flight... Of, of aircraft, and she was involved in the fight against the Nazi Germany in World War Two. So she wasn't in the Japanese, yeah, the, the Pacific area. She was a European-based aircraft. All right, now just for those technopro technic people out there, the aircraft was designed with ten fifty cal or fifty caliber machine guns and a crew of up to ten men. It could carry up to eight thousand pounds of high explosives. All right. Now, Consolidated Aircraft in San Diego made 629 of these aircraft, but there were in total 18,500 made during the war. And 8,000, eight, just over 8,500 of those were actually made by Ford. Wow. <laughs> I mean, that's what they say. I mean, they do say that. Uh when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, they woke up a giant, and my God, I mean, 18... Th bearing in mind, they joined the war in 1941, so that means in the space of four years, they'd made... And that's just one of their... That's just one aircraft, yeah. Nearly 20,000 of one aircraft. That's mm -hmm. that's just mental. I mean, uh, the, the B-24 holds the record as the world's most produced bomber... It's the most produced heavy bomber. It's the most produced multi-engined aircraft and the most produced American aircraft in history. So they're the records that the uh, the Liberator actually holds. It shows. Right? Yeah, that's quite a lot of aircraft. So this aircraft came off the production line, all right? It's a brand new plane and it's being delivered to a place called Saluk. Mm-hmm. All right, and that's in Libya, North Africa. Yep. It's a brand new aircraft. Never been out, absolutely spotless, and it flies all the way to Libya in, in North Africa. She arrived there on the 23rd of March, 1943, and became part of the 376th Bombardment Group. Now, Soluk is just south of a place called Benghazi, and it is 40 miles, four zero miles inland from the Mediterranean Sea. Okay. So it's just inside the, the North African coast, yeah? It was there that she met up with her crew of nine airmen. Uh, they were also new. Okay. So they'd ne well, obviously they'd never served on that aircraft, but they nope. ever served together? Nope. Nope. They so. had arrived at the airbase one week before, so they arrived around about the 16th of March. Right, okay. Okay. So upon... The uh, arrival, this aircraft was given a number. That number was 64. They painted number 64 on the left-hand side of the nose, uh, the nose of the aircraft, below the uh, cockpit, and they gave her a name. A lot of American bombers had uh, a picture painted on the side yep. and a name. All right, And this particular name was the Lady Be Good. Did the British have names? No. Ooh. I'll say you got. No, they didn't. We had S for sugar. That's yeah, in yeah. that's in the museum. The Lancaster. S, S for sugar. Yeah, but it wasn't. A, it's it, not a nickname. It's it not was a nickname just, or just, anything. Yeah. Just a letter and a, a word. Uh, I mean, nobody actually knows who gave her this name, but it was believed that she was named after a song in the movie that we mentioned right at the beginning. Right. Okay. okay. I mean, the Americans were ace because they didn't just paint on their on the uh, the aircraft. They painted on the bombs that they dropped as well. So, like, this is a message for Mr. Hitler and things like that, just painted on the bombs when they yeah, dropped them. That's, I think that's awesome. You know why? 
No. Because when the bombs landed and didn't go off, they actually had the message. Otherwise, the messages were no good. Cause well, yeah, I, I assumed they would have, <laughs> the messages would have been no good anyway, but I just think it's... I it's, just think it's brilliant. Yeah, yeah it's a great, great idea. idea. Yeah. <laughs> Let's drop a bomb, but we'll put a message on it so that when it doesn't explode, we can read it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. <laughs> okay. Now, Suluk at this time was an airbase, and it was set up with the sole purpose of attacking the ports in Italy, because Italy at the time was part of the German alliance. Mm-hmm. Okay, and the German, the Italy, Italian ports were being used as major supply dumps for the German forces that were in North Africa. Yeah, uh, Suluk itself was just a series of tents. That's all it was. There was no buildings there. It was just tents, um, and they were only there to protect the, the crews uh, from the one hundred degree Fahrenheit daytime heat and the freezing nights. Yeah. Because yeah. it's technically it's in the desert. Yeah, yeah, it's, right. it's you get the complete opposites of uh, night and day, don't you? Yeah. Now the plane we're talking about, the Lady Be Good, was obviously named, and the name was painted on the right-hand side of the aircraft. Mm-hmm. So you've got sixty-four on the left, and the Lady Be Good on the right. Now her first ever mission was on the 4th of April. Mm -hmm. And the mission was designated Raid 109. Uh, Lady Be Good was one of 25 aircraft being sent out north from the um, North African coast across the Mediterranean to bomb the German-held Italian harbour at Naples. Now, the crews were given their instructions and positions in the group, along with warnings about German fighters around the Italian coasts. That's quite important. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, the Germans knew that the Americans... Were coming. ...were going to be coming because the Americans did their raids during the day. And it is a regular thing. Yeah. All right. Uh, they were also warned, the American crews, that uh, they had to remain radio silent right, so they had to not talk on the radio between themselves okay that would give away their position and direct german fighters to their position and, and makes he sense he didn't want them getting shot down yep mm-hmm. um they were also warned that the germans had a habit of sending out false navigational signals so at the time they would send a a radio signal in a straight line yep. on the same frequency as the American bases would send out their frequency. And if a bomber caught the wrong one, it would fly in the wrong direction. Okay, that's actually yeah. quite clever. Yeah, so the Germans, uh, you know, to be perfectly honest, the Germans were not stupid. No. You know? Um, no, they weren't. So you've got that. The planes... The, the the American planes were split into two groups with 14 aircraft in the first section, which we you know is Section A, and 11 in Section B. Mm-hmm. The Lady Be Good was positioned at number three in the section B section. So it was the second section. It was the third plane back, second section. This was to be the f- crew's first ever combat mission. Okay. So you got a brand new plane brand new crew you couldn't have anything better no right that's not a good idea believe me and i'll explain that in a minute the scheduled takeoff was at 12 30 p.m so just after midday and mission 109 was the only b24 raid from africa on this day so they were the only aircraft the american liberators in the sky at that time on that day yeah a section was due to take off and fly 20 minutes ahead of b section and all aircraft were fueled for 12 hours right okay now the crew (coughs) the crew of the lady be good we had a pilot called william hatton co-pilot Robert Toner. Navigator was a bloke called uh, Lee. Uh, 
Rorvac was the bombardier. Ripslinger was the uh, flight engineer. Lamotte, the radio operator. Shelley, Moore and Adams were all gunners. Okay. That's the crew of the Lady Be Good. I've just... I, I mean, this is totally off topic now, but... That Sergeant Ripslinger, that is such a great surname. Oh, what, Harold J. Ripslinger. That's one of the best surnames I've ever... Yeah, if, if I, I can't pronounce where he was from, but it was somewhere in Michigan. <laughs> yeah. Sa- Saginaw. Saginaw. Sa- Saginaw, Saginaw. Yeah, yeah, one of them. Saginaw. Something like that, anyway. Yeah, that's a great surname. That's a proper American hopefully, surname. Though. Hopefully, the, one of your American listeners will be able to tell us how to pronounce that place. Yeah, yeah, someone... Uh, someone Someone out there. Saginaw, Saginaw, somewhere in Michigan. Someone someone tell us how to pronounce that. Now, none of these men that I've just mentioned had ever been on a combat mission before. Although William Hatton, the pilot, had been scheduled to fly as a co-pilot on an earlier mission. Because, obviously, they didn't want people going out blind and out, but needs must, you know, in this case. Um, And he did actually fly out, but after 25 minutes the aircraft he was on had an engine failure and had to return. So he only got 25 minutes in the air. So technically, even William Hatton, the uh, the captain of the aircraft and the pilot, he hadn't had any uh, experience. So they were all very green. Uh, yeah. yeah, very. Now, taking off from a desert runway isn't as straightforward as it seems. It's not like running down a, a tarmac road and just lifting off. All right. The first plane up has no problems whatsoever but kicks up a lot of sand. This is known as dirty air and presented all manner of problems to the following aircraft. So plane number two would try to take off to the left of the lead plane and plane number three would take off to the right of uh, or, or left of that. So it would be like a staggered takeoff. Yeah. So they're not all in dirty air. However, once the first three have gone, the sand is everywhere and all the rest of the aircraft had to take off in dirty air. You'd want to be the first one then, really, wouldn't now, you? Bearing in mind, Lady Be Good was number three, second thing. So it took off in clean air-ish. Yeah. Yeah. Now, sand got into every single part of the aircraft and that included the engines. So this resulted in a large number of what we call turnbacks. And a turnback occurred when the pilot of an aircraft realised that his plane may not make the flight there and back. And so it's a common occurrence for a procedure to take place. Yeah, so he it would drop quite out a lot. He would drop out. It happened a lot from the North African air bases. Okay. All right. If the plane in front of you dropped out... You move up. You move up to take its place. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. 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 Once all the planes were up and on their way, uh, it's an estimated eight hours to the target with the strong headwind. So they were flying into the wind. Okay. Uh, The headwind was actually much stronger than they'd been briefed to expect. um, Because in 1943, there was no way of actually knowing... How strong it uh, that, was. How strong it was. Yeah. Oh, uh, you know, without some serious checks. And they yeah. didn't do those serious checks because it's a combat mission. At 13.05, so it's five past one, the Lady Be Good joins combat section B in the air. She was piloted by, as we've said, 26-year-old Lieutenant Hatton. Three hours into the flight, Lieutenant Wright, flying alongside Lady Be Good, loses an engine. Okay. Turns back. Five minutes later, the plane ahead of the Lady Be Good turns back with a fuel leak. (laughs) Right. A few minutes later after that, now we're talking three hours into the flight, so they are over halfway. Right, okay. Another plane in front of the Lady Be Good loses an engine and turns back. 
40 minutes after that, the plane behind Lady Be Good has engine trouble and also turns back. It's really not looking very good, is it? No. At quarter to six in the evening, another plane in the old Lady Be Good section turns back, having had a double engine failure due to sand getting into it. Took that long for the sand to get into the engine. Wow. They carried on. 150 miles from the target, so they're now not far from the target. The lead plane in the second section fell out of formation due to reduced engine power, again, through sand. Ten minutes after that, another plane leaves the formation because of an engine failure in number three engine. 1820, another aircraft leaves the formation down to what's believed to be a failure of one of the gunner's oxygen masks freezing up. Right, okay. That's not a nice thing to happen. No, I can imagine. This section was further reduced five minutes later when another plane drops out for the same reason. So you've gone through all of those and you've lost count now, haven't you? Yeah, completely. Right, leaves four bombers in the second section. Right, out of 11. Out of 11, all right. Okay, yeah, that's not very... uh... So at half past six, on the evening of this particular raid, the lead bomber was the Lady Be Good. Okay. They've never been in the air before, they've never had been in combat before, they've never worked as a crew before, they're in a brand new aircraft... And they are now the lead plane in the second section. Okay. There's no radio communication. They can't talk to anyone. They can't talk to anyone. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. At 18.50 hours, the formation is 30 miles away from the target. Okay. It's now dark. The Americans didn't bomb in the dark. Okay. Yeah, the Germans did. And the British did. The did. Americans bombed during the daylight. The British bombed at night. Fair enough. The Americans had better armed aircraft for defensive purposes. Therefore, mm. they could defend themselves better in daylight. The British bombers did not have very good armament. You take Lancaster, it had two guns at the front, two at the top, and four at the back. Yeah. That's it. Eight guns. Mm. Yeah, so compare that to the American bombers, the big four-engine American bombers. They were vastly underrated, so they could only fly at night because, to be honest... They'd have taken out of Lancaster. The Germans would have just obliterated the RAF during the day. Yeah. All right, so that's the reasoning. But because it is now dark... There was me thinking they just had bigger balls to just fly during the day. No, <laughs> well, yeah. Then, then, I mean, I wouldn't want to. If I was, if I had during the day, choice, you can be seen. Yeah, if I was given the choice, I'd take the night. I'd take the night any day. Yeah, <laughs> um, but yeah. So it's too dark now to make the bombing run. Um, <clears throat> to be honest, at this point in the war, uh, the US were unable to cope with nighttime bombing anyway, and would only drop during daylight. But yeah. that's yeah. yeah. Uh, it was left to the RAF to do the more complicated night attacks because it was harder to find a target at night. Yeah, I mean, I mean, why well, did uh, an episode on these uh, on the the bombers and just saying, you know, some of these bombs would they'd land ten miles away from the target. Just, oh yeah, and more. I wouldn't say that the RAF they, were much better. They weren't accurate. They're they just... were no way accurate. Bomb sites were just not accurate in those no. days. So anyway, the Lady Be Good was unable to attack. It was unable to drop her bombs, and rather than drop them on an unknown target, potentially civilian, she turned back. The other three aircraft in that section did the same thing. Mm-hmm. So Lady Be Good's B section was now flying back to North Africa. Now, flying at night is a problem. Flying at night in wartime is a problem. Flying at night at wartime over water has some unique problems. 
Yeah, I can imagine. Okay. Firstly, there's no lights below. There's no landmarks, and there is no way of finding out your exact location. Yeah. Yeah, that doesn't sit, and they've not. When got, you look straight down, it all looks the same. It all looks the same because it's the same level. Mm. You know, a ten-foot wave, if you were on it, is not is not not pleasant. But if you're flying a few thousand feet above it, it you can't same. see it. Yeah. Yeah. So there's no way of finding your exact location, and Suluk was a very small speck on the ground in the middle of the desert. And because of the war and the, the fear of the Germans are bombing the American air bases, all the lights in the tents were deliberately faint. Hmm. Makes sense. Yeah. The, the, uh, the US used um, a radio beacon which worked on a heading and enabled a, replane, a plane coming in to receive the signal and fly along it as a straight line that would lead it to the base yeah you couldn't tell how far along that line you were but it would lead you to that base so all four aircraft in this b section made their way across the mediterranean sea separately they might fly in formation on the way but the minute they turn for home it's every man for himself yeah okay yeah that makes yeah. sense so they all I mean, go, you'd think they'd be almost next to each other. They're all going in the same direction, but, you know, they are, some pilots would flat out and and go for it. Some would ease off to save, save fuel. fuel. Some might have an injured passenger, an injured person that they were dealing with, and that's all sorts, yeah? Yeah. So there's lots of reasons why they weren't in a group. At quarter to ten at night... B-24 lands at Suluk. Yeah. Second B-24 lands at 10 past 10 at night. Okay. A third had had a problem on the return journey and diverted off to the west and gone towards Malta. Okay. Because it was running low on fuel. Malta was closer. And Malta was closer. Why don't they just all go back to Malta? It would been a lot easier. Ten hours after the mission started, there was one aircraft left in the air. Yep. Lady be good. Now, a radio message was received by uh, a British a high-frequency direction-finding station, 14 miles, one four miles, from Suluk at quarter past midnight. Yeah. The lady lady be good was requesting a location steer as his direction finder was not working. The station replied with a heading telling him that he was on a direct heading from Naples to Benghazi. And remember Benghazi is not far from Suluk. Yeah. Yeah. The direction finder in use at the base only had a single loop antenna, so it was unable to distinguish between a true bearing and a reciprocal bearing. So basically it put a line out, but the transmitter was in the middle of that line. So it went one way and then it went the other way. Yeah. 180, yeah. So it's you follow the line, yeah. So the same bearing would have been returned whether the plane was inbound from the Mediterranean or if it had flown over the base and was heading away. It could still be on the same line. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. That message was the last time the Lady Be Good was ever heard of. She just disappeared. Hmm. On the morning of the 5th of April, 1943... Aircraft 64 and Lieutenant Hatton and his crew was listed as unaccounted for. So the Americans, being very, very concerned, launched a, a search for the aircraft. And it was concentrated on the area to the north of the airbase and included a very substantial area of the Mediterranean Sea. Because that's where they were. Yeah. 
You know, they radio. We're coming in. We can't see you. We don't know exactly where we are. They could have downed it in the sea. They could have downed it in the sea. Yeah. No trace of that aircraft was ever found. Hmm. It just disappeared. Uh, exactly one year to the day, the crew of the Lady Be Good were officially listed as dead in action, the crew unrecoverable. As far as they're concerned, it's crashed into the sea, sunk, lost yeah. lost the crew. And that's something that no army likes is not recoverable. No. You can't take them home. So the war ended. Lady Be Good was forgotten. Nobody knew anything about it. It was just one of those aircraft that had disappeared during the war and the crew had gone. Yeah. Hmm. 1958, a, a, an aircraft belonging to BP, British Petroleum, was flying in the Libyan desert looking for possible signs of oil and saw an aircraft on the ground. Now, they reported this, but for whatever reason nothing was ever taken no 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 no, action. no no action was ever taken a few months later another flight in the same era area saw the saw and reported the same aircraft nothing was done about this report either and no other uh reports about a crashed plane in the desert appeared until may 1959 when a British oil exploration unit using desert vehicles were prospecting for oil deep in the Libyan desert, and they came across an aircraft propeller. Now, it's an aircraft propeller. It's in the middle of the desert. Yeah. What's it doing here? And they carried on, and they found an abandoned aircraft. This aircraft was 475 miles into the desert. Um, in fact, it was about 470 miles from Suluk. I was going to say that that's a hell of a that's a hell of a long way in. Yeah, yeah. There was a number painted on the fuselage of this aircraft. 64. Right. They'd found the Lady Be Good. Yeah. Nowhere near where it should have been. No. She'd been missing for 16 years. The US Air Force sent out a unit to the plane, and they described it as reasonably good condition. The number four engine had been ripped off the wing. The remaining three engines were still there. Their propellers were bent, so that tells the people who are looking at it that it actually crashed while the engines were running. Uh, the fuselage had broken, it had broken in half, uh, but apart from the damage sustained in the actual impact the with the ground, yeah. it was actually in very, very good condition. All the guns were present, they were still loaded. The landing gear was still up. There was no battle damage, no holes. Um, and the interior was recorded as being in perfect condition. <laughs> so 16 years later on, the oxygen bottles still held pressure and the radio still worked. Wow. Okay. And they know the radio still worked because the unit that found them had a problem with their radio and they used the radio from the Lady Be Good. <laughs> That's quite funny. Uh, the fire extinguishers still held fluid. Cold weather flying suits were still hung up. Cigarettes and chewing gum were found. And there was a half-filled thermos of coffee. <laughs> I bet it was still hot if it was a decent thermos. Yeah, after 16 years, I don't kind of think so no. somehow. <laughs> Maybe not. Most worrying of all, though, the desert survival kits were found inside the aircraft and intact. Ah. Also found was the navigator's log, and that belonged to Second Lieutenant Hayes. Nothing was written in it after the U-turn at Naples. Ah. So, how come she was 
over 500 miles southeast of her last reported position, and where was the crew? Yeah. It's one of those mysteries that came out in the 1950s. All right. Mm. So one of those conspiracy theory things and absolutely everything that went with it. Okay. Yeah. There was no trace of the crew. But there were many useful items that were still in the aircraft. And that tells us, or it told the, the, the people, that um, the crew and the plane must have come down separately. The crew weren't on the aircraft when it came down. They couldn't have been. Otherwise, they would have taken survival kits. Well, you'd have thought they so. would have been. They might have been injured and left some bandages or something. Right. Um, so, as there was no sign of the crew, they determined that they they must have left the plane prior to coming down. Prior to it actually coming down. The area that the aircraft was in was so desolate; it had no features. It was just flat land stretching for miles and miles. And a search was conducted for the crew um, on the assumption that they would have headed north. Yeah, that makes sense. On the first day, they found a pair of heavy flight boots. Now, crews at that time, American bomber crews, wore light boots inside heavyweight ones um, to basically cover for if they actually landed. So you've got your heavy, warm flight boots, but you put... a other kind of boots inside those yeah in yeah, case you had sense. to get out of the aircraft and then you wouldn't be weighed down by your heavy boots landing in the sea for example yeah you wouldn't yeah. be dragged under and things makes like sense that. so there was no doubt that these boots came from a member of of the l the lbg's crew yeah uh but because they'd found these boots they thought that the crew might have bailed out so they've 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 got continued the search they've spread out now yeah within six miles of this find these boots they found a set of vehicle tracks now of course you've got vehicle tracks in a deep desert yeah that's a bit strange bearing in mind that there's no sandstorms because there's no sand dunes right okay yeah. so it's just flat desert sand when it's blown, causes sand dunes. So if you're in an area that has sandstorms, you get sand dunes. The light sand gets blown into hills. Yeah. When there's no sand, no um, sandstorms and no high winds, you just, the, the desert is just flat. Right. So anything on the ground would be visible years later. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes so sense. They found these. they found these vehicle tracks and... They actually worked out that they were from five Italian vehicles who were running from the British forces 17 years ago. <laughs> All right. And they were heading north. So the people who were doing the searching thought if the crew found those tracks, they'd follow them. Yeah. Yeah, that's logical. I would have done. In the hope of reaching civilization. So the searchers headed north along the tracks for several miles. They came across a silk parachute laid out in the shape of an arrow. Right, okay. Bearing in mind we're talking this aircraft has come down 16 years before. There's your silk parachute with an arrow. The silk was held down with rocks. The arrow pointed north. It was 19 miles north of the crashed aircraft. But it was continuing along the lines of the 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 track lines. They carried on and they found six more parachute arrows. Wow. Several days later, three more silk parachute arrows were found, along with another pair of boots. They also found flying helmets and harnesses en route. Okay. Just north of the last chute that they found, they found another vehicle track. And this one crossed the original one and headed off to the northeast. They followed this track for several miles, extending over 
five miles either side of both tracks so that they could check to see and see if they found it. They found the skeleton of a large bird, but nothing else. Okay. After several weeks of searching, the conclusion was reached that the crew must have bailed out, walked north separately in the hope of reaching the coast, not realising it's 500 miles away. Um, and that's where they, they just disappeared. It was believed that they'd survived the bailout. Well, yeah, they would have done if they put the chutes in arrows. I mean, if you're looking at a map, the place that we're talking about is a place called the uh, the Sand Sea of Kalanshio. But that doesn't mean anything to anybody, and it certainly doesn't mean no. sod all to me. But, no, but a, if you Googled it, you'd it, see how... It's, it's a vast area of desert sand and Libya, Libyan desert, and it's made up of loose sand. There are some sand dunes raising up to about 700 feet, but... At some places, the sand is loose. Yeah. And if you're walking in it, you can sink up to your knees with each step. It's it's a place that's totally, totally horrible to be. All right? Even the desert-dwelling Arabs, the people we call the Bedouin, they don't even go into it. It's an area of, of the sand and desert they never, ever venture into. So the crew had made it there but they must have died and their bodies covered over by the shifting sands, if there were any. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, at least that's what they believed at the time. Yeah, well, uh, I would have probably made the same assumption. Yeah. February 1960, another British Petroleum Prospecting Unit came across five skeletons half half buried in the sand... 78 miles northwest of the crashed aircraft. Oh. From the clothing and the artifacts they found on them, they were five members of the Lady B. Goods crew. They were grouped together with their personal belongings and examinations of the remains and personal items showed that eight of the nine airmen managed to parachute safely down to the desert from the aircraft. They'd located each other by firing revolvers into the air and signal flares. The ninth man, a gentleman called uh, John Warovaca. Yeah. Warovaca. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. John Warovaca, the bombardier, he was never found. Okay. One item was found. And it was a diary belonging to the Lady Be Good's co-pilot. It's only a small diary. And he'd written in it for eight days. Okay. This was after the bailout. Yeah. I'll tell you what he wrote in his diary. Because this is a really, really poignant part of this particular story. These are the words he wrote. Sunday, April 4th. Naples, 28 planes, pretty well mixed up, got lost returning, run out of gas, jumped, landed in the desert at two in the morning. No one badly hurt, can't find John, all others present. Monday, April 5th, started walking northwest, still no John. A few rations, one half canteen of water, one cap full per day. Sun, fairly warm, good breeze from northwest, Night, very cold, no sleep, rested and walked. Tuesday, April 6th. Rested at 11.30. Sun, very warm, no breeze, spent p.m. in hell, no planes. Rested until 5 p.m., walked and rested all night, 15 minutes on, 5 off. Wednesday, 7th of April. Same routine, everyone getting weak. Can't get very far. Prayers all the time. Again, PM, very warm. Hell, can't sleep. Everyone sore from the ground. Thursday, April 8th. Hit sand dunes. Very miserable. Good wind, but conditions blowing of sand. Everyone now very weak. Thought Sam and Moore all done. Lamotte's eyes are gone. 
everyone's eyes are bad, still going northwest. Friday, April 9th. Shelley, Rip, Moore separate to go for help. Rest of us, very weak, eyes bad, not any travel at all, want to die. Still very little water, night's about 35. Good north wind, no shelter, one parachute left. Saturday, April 10th. Still having prayer meetings for help. No sign of anything. A couple of birds. Good wind from the north. Really weak now. Can't walk. Pains all over. All want to die. Night's very cold. No sleep. Sunday, April 11. Still waiting for help. Still praying. Eyes bad. Lost all our weight. Aching all over. Could make it if we had water. Just enough left to put our tongues to. Have hope for help very soon. No rest, still same place. Monday, 12th of April. No help yet, very cold night. That's the last entry. Tuesday, all the crew were dead. Bloody hell. So, given the information that was written in this very, very small diary, it was now known that three of the crew had tried to walk to help to fi- uh, and find help. So a search was made north of the skeletons, again, unfortunately, without any result. And it was concluded that these three men had perished in the desert, and again, their be- bodies had been buried by the sand. But on the 12th of May, 1960, another exploration crew from British Petroleum found the remains of Staff Sergeant Shelley 24 miles northwest of the five bodies that were found. Five days later, a US helicopter found Technical Sergeant Ripslinger. His remains were 26 miles northwest of Shelley. Ripslinger's remains were over 200 miles from the crash site. Wow. So he'd walked a long way. That's, But it's still one hell of a long way from Saluka. It's not even halfway. No. But he's walked 200 miles in the desert. Yeah. Still left two, still left two of the crew unaccounted for. In August 1960, another British Petroleum Exploration crew discovered the remains the remains of second lieutenant Horavaka. The one they couldn't find. The one that the crew didn't know where he was. 1960. August 1960. And that's the one they couldn't find. From the position, it's deduced that his evident his it was evident that his parachute had failed to open correctly and he'd just crashed. It died it on impact. Died on impact. Yeah. leaving one person. And that was the body of Vernon Moore, one of the gunners. Officially, he's never been found. Okay. However, there is a distinct possibility that several years earlier, it may have been. 1953... A British Army Deep Desert Patrol came across human remains in the area north of the five that were mentioned. They recorded the find and they buried the remains. As there were no reports of any Allied aircrew missing in the area, no investigation was carried out. So potentially all of the crew have been found. I think it's probably likely. There can't be that many bodies like you said even the the local arabs wouldn't even go into the desert so the chances of there being a random body it's uh probably more likely that they did find it so that's your story of the lady be good so i'll put it briefly for you yeah okay aircraft 41 24301 arrives direct from the factory and was given a brand to a brand new untried crew none had been on the raid prior to raid 109 
being a new plane, it had not been subject to the ravages of desert sand, so it was one of the planes least likely to have a mechanical problem and didn't drop out of the mission. Despite the much stronger than expected headwind, the flight to Naples was uneventful for the crew of Lady We Good. Uh, but the other planes, a number of them, were forced to drop out. This left Lady Be Good as the lead plane. They were unable to drop their bombs, so they turned around with three other aircraft. For some reason, the Lady Be Good's navigator didn't make any notes in his record book. So it's probably at that time they didn't have a functioning navigator. He may have been ill, he may have hurt himself, he may have, could have been anything, but he didn't write in his book. Yeah. This is the synopsis. So the outward bound headwind became a tailwind on the way back, increasing their speed, reducing their travel time. So any deck dead reckoning navigation would estimate the distance they'd travelled as less than the actual one they had. Yeah. So it's possible that Hatton believed the homing signals he could hear were coming from a German transmitter based in Sicily because he'd been warned of it. Yeah, that's true. He's a brand new pilot. He's and they're never not allowed experienced. To talk. He's never experienced anything before. No. Like this. So he doesn't know. Hatton remained an, at an altitude much longer than it was necessary. And if this was the case, he would have missed the flares from the base. When he requested the bearing fix, it was most likely that he had already overflown his own yeah. base, Saluka. So he's just looking. To he was stay on, on the, line. the correct heading, but the base was behind him and not in front of him. Given the equipment on board the aircraft, they probably knew how far they were away from the base, but they just were heading away. Yeah, so they check it and go, they go, oh, we're only 50 miles away, and actually, we're 50 miles in the wrong direction. The plane flies on until it runs out of fuel. Without any features, the flat desert looks like the sea. Mm. And it looks exactly the same at night. So it's probable... The crew really believed that they were bailing out over the Mediterranean Sea, and that's probably that, that that's evidence. And we can come to that conclusion because they were actually the, the skeletons were found with life jackets and not the desert kit that was and not the desert kit. The desert kits and the water was left on the plane. If you you don't want to take water into the sea. The sea is water. Yeah, but it's not water you can drink. Yeah, but you're gonna if you're there, you're gonna you know that you're gonna be searched for during the sea. Yeah, true. The crew walked north because it was the direction to the sea, and therefore it was the direction of their base. They didn't realise they were over four hundred miles from it. No, well, I don't think anyone would have in Um, that situation. (laughs) The really, really sad part of this is if they had walked south they would have met up with their own aircraft. Mm. Which we now know contained desert survival kits, uh, water, and a working radio. In fact, if they'd have actually headed south and travelled slightly fewer miles than they actually did, which is just under 200 miles, it would have reached a place called the Wadi Zighen Oasis, which is a waterhole in the middle of the desert. They just didn't know how far into the desert they'd flown. Mm. A lot of historians have read it and analysed this, and they reckon that the crew could have survived if they'd known how far inland they were and had their maps with them when they bailed out. They managed to locate each other by firing uh, personal issue firearms and flares, and they all met up together, so eight men now walking north. But the ninth crewman died when his parachute didn't open. Within a week, they were all dead. The crew's remains were returned to the US, with the exception of Vernon Moore, who was most likely buried in the sand in 1953. Yeah. In August 1994, the remains of the aircraft were recovered by Dr. Fadil Ali Mohammed and taken to the Liberian military base in Tobruk for safekeeping. They're now stored at the Libyan Air Force Base there. Fair enough. 
And you just got to think the supreme effort that the crew made to survive in the desert for eight or nine days without food and water and still go over 200 miles. Yeah, that's mad. You know? Yeah, that must have been a, like, you know, it's a, it's a horrible story to think how just, it was hopeless. Like, there, there was, there was actually no hope of walking 400 miles in the desert without the right gear, without water. You just can't do it. It's physically never going to happen. No. Um, and, and you know, literally from the from the moment they parachuted out of that plane, they were dead. There was no other way about it. They were too far into the desert to ever, to ever get a, get a grip of anything and to, to ever survive. But it shows that the resilience of people to to try and survive in that situation yeah you know to to walk that far is is just i don't think i could walk that far <laughs> in, in this in, yeah in, 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 yeah just in, normally yeah yeah so yeah mental i mean do you want this one sad part of the story yeah which i haven't mentioned the pilot william hatton did his flight training in a in arizona and just before he left for North Africa, mm-hmm. he wrote to his mother, and in the letter he says, "I don't know where I'm going. I hope it's somewhere better than here. I hate the desert." Yeah, because there's a big desert in Arizona, isn't there? Iron- ironic or what? Yeah, just a bit. Yeah. So that's the story of the Lady Be Good, and yeah. it's become known as the Ghost Plane. Hmm. Now I can see why. So, yeah, it's a it's an awesome story, and it's uh, again, like I said, there, there are parts of that that I I didn't know. I mean, I knew they all died walking. I didn't realize how far they actually had to walk. You know, like I say, it's just it's just not possible. The uh, the yeah, it's horrible when you think about these men. Obviously, one of their friends has died straight well, as away. As far as they're concerned, they, they, they he's just somewhere in the desert yeah i mean we now know that he fell from the aircraft his parachute didn't open and he just went splat yeah but they didn't no and it, but it's that they, they, they could be thinking he's wandering around the desert on his own mm. you know yeah it's uh but to be it. only 16 miles from the crashed aircraft which had a working radio yeah and they could have yeah if they'd have just walked I'm surprised that that wasn't the thought, to be honest, because they would have, I mean, 16 miles, you've got to bail out at somewhere over 3,000 feet, so they would have bailed out when that, when probably when the engine stopped, I would yeah, have thought. I would have thought so. So, you know that you're not going, it's not going to have travelled that far, because it's going down. Um, Maybe they would probably think, no, it's going to be a complete wreck, there's going to be nothing left of it. I suppose they also thought they, they were landing in the sea. So yeah. what's the point? Yeah, but then when they hit the ground and go, "Oh, this isn't wet," that would have been the point where I'd have probably gone, "Okay, well the plane's not going to have gone that far. We don't know how far we've got to go that way. We don't know where we are because clearly we're not in the water that we expected to be. Let's try and find a big, massive silver plane in the middle of the desert." probably more likely to i think i would probably have done what they did i think i would have turned around and thought we're in the desert we know that the base is to the north of us and if we keep walking we're going to hit the coast and once we hit the coast we're we can walk along the coast to to a town i also think when they saw those tracks because vehicle tracks in the desert is going to give you some sort of hope that you're not that far yeah, how many how many vehicles are you going to find four hundred miles into the desert? Probably not very many. Well, you wouldn't expect many. No, exactly. So I suppose when you see that, you sort of go, right, we've got to follow these. These have got to be taking us the right way. But yeah, but anyway, it's quite a sad story, really, when you think about it. Um, but like I said it's one I've of the few of those, haven't I? Yeah, <laughs> but it's one of the most famous stories, um, you know, from from the Second World War. I, I mean, like I said, I've 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 heard of the name. And I'm sure many of the listeners have heard of the Lady Be Good. Um, maybe not know what it is. Maybe they knew it was an aircraft. So, like I said, the Americans 
than um, naming To be theirs. honest, I think people looking at your pictures may have thought, oh, that's the aircraft that crashed into the desert. Yeah. But not know much about it. No. I mean, and like I said, it was at, it was at the time halfway through the Memphis Bell, which actually became the most famous aircraft because it was the first one to complete its missions. Yeah. Well, the and Enola so Gay took of, over, didn't it? Let's be honest. Well, the Enola Gay was just it, it just one mission. That's all it's known for. It's a hell of a mission, though. <laughs> it was just a bombing mission, you know. All right, it carried a British invention, but was it British? I thought it was Einstein that invented the nuclear bomb. Really don't want me to go into that, do you, with the Manhattan Project? Robert Oppenheimer. Yeah. They're not British, were they? Britain and France developed the atomic bomb. America said that they were going to come into, would uh, supply some expertise and refine it with the help of the British and the French. Yeah. And the Americans took it, kept it, didn't tell the British and French what they were doing. And basically stole the idea, and then dropped ah. the bomb. Oh, we need to do the Manhattan Project then. We've got to do that. I didn't you know didn't that. Know no, that. I did not know Ooh. that at all. No, it was a, it's, a, it's a British and French um, I, idea. It's a British and French discovery. It's a British and French bomb, and the Americans took it and basically were going to work as a group of three and the Americans didn't they worked on their own and did it themselves and did it themselves ah. with, with a, so without the French and the British the Americans would have had no idea about an atomic bomb so it's our fault that the world's now teetering on a knife edge with nuclear war well technically we didn't drop it well no but <laughs> <laughs> and no, you've that... got the story of how the bomb came to be on the Enola Gay which is another one you can do Mm, not USS of Indianapolis. Yes. Ah. Okay. There there's a go. few in the pipeline for you. There we go. There's, a, there's some to look forward to. We'll see but what I've we de- do. definitely got to do the Manhattan Project now. I've, I knew about it. Said it's not. <laughs> you're gonna get some. You're gonna get some grief for that one. Yeah. But no, that's. Uh, I mean, I said I, I love having you on. So, um, as always, these shows are are available on Patreon ad free for those of you who do listen to the podcast or have listened to the last episode um last episode being obviously norse mythology um i have had a couple of messages from you guys saying that you want to hear more norse mythology um so i may do a couple more of those they are quite um quite simple uh, stories for me to get out to you guys so i do quite like doing them um and they are quite fun as well um but obviously if you guys let me know we'll if we want more of those but I know what we do want, and we want more of you on the show, Dad. So we really, going, yeah, oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, so we're going to get some more stories out there. Um, there. I've got a few lined up in the pipeline that are coming up. Probably some of uh, the most famous people in world history, or definitely in music history. So I spoke to you today. There is a couple of good ones coming up, but as always, these episodes will be on Patreon before they're on the normal feed. And there will be some episodes coming up that will only be for Patreon. So if you are interested in that or you do want to get yourselves over there, listen to those extra episodes, um, I will be putting those onto Patreon. Um, I believe it's $5 a month. You can put more in if you want to, but it's entirely up to you. But that's all from me, and uh, we shall see you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Bye-bye. In the heat of the moment, you're not just keeping it calm, you're keeping it cool, too. With an ice-cold cold brew, and not just any cold brew, but one that's slow-steeped and mixed with brown sugar and molasses flavor. With a cold foam infused with brown sugar coolness and a cinnamon sugar sprinkle on top. That's keeping it calm, cool, and cold brewed. With Dunkin's new brown sugar cream cold brew, America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Terms apply. The world is always on. But you shouldn't be. Put junk sleep to bed. At Mattress Firm's Black Friday Now Sale, save up to 60% on Sealy with Queen Mattresses starting at $279.99. Talk to a sleep expert today and unjunk your sleep.
Bundling home and car insurance with GEICO is so easy, your neighbors are probably already doing it. But who? They may drop little hints like... Beautiful day out. Even more beautiful since we saved by bundling our home and car insurance with GEICO. Or... Yard work is hard. Much harder than bundling with GEICO, which was easy. Or it may be even subtler, like... Speaking of burgers, we bundled our home and car insurance with GEICO and saved a bunch of money. Bundling is easy with GEICO. Just ask your neighbors. In the heat of the moment, you're not just keeping it calm, you're keeping it cool, too. With an ice-cold cold brew. And not just any cold brew, but one that's slow-steeped and mixed with brown sugar and molasses flavor. With a cold foam infused with brown sugar coolness and a cinnamon sugar sprinkle on top. That's keeping it calm, cool, and cold brewed. With Dunkin's new brown sugar cream cold brew, America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Terms apply.